In our uh, ongoing quest to um, be mentored by Moses, uh, we come this morning to uh, an interesting uh, passage of Scripture in Exodus chapter 12. And uh, we realized last week, you know, that God is the one who actually set up this confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh, right? Uh, God provoked Pharaoh into this confrontation, actually. And uh, we saw that, you know, Moses, according to the Bible, was the meekest and most humble man on the face of the earth. And uh, Pharaoh was the king of Egypt and probably the most powerful man on the face of the earth and probably the most proud man. And God sets up this confrontation between the most meek man and perhaps the most proud man on the face of the earth. It's kind of like, you know, the people who won the Super Bowl uh, going up against the worst team in the NFL, except that God is on the worst teams. God's going to intervene on behalf of the worst team, right? And I would suggest to you that actually the Exodus story is the Super Bowl of the Old Testament. It's the story that God wanted everybody to remember. And uh, he instituted the Passover as a celebration, a feast, if you will, so that nobody would ever forget. And the Passover is actually the oldest uh, celebration that's still going on today of any celebration in the world. Uh, uh, you know, th- about 3,500 years, people have been celebrating the Passover. So it's kind of significant. And um, you might ask, well, well, why did God set up this confrontation? Why did God have, you know, meek Moses and uh, proud Pharaoh uh, come together against each other. And in uh, Exodus chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, here's what God says. For by now, and we're only on the plague of hail, the seventh plague, and um, for by now, God says, I could have put out my hand and struck you, Pharaoh, and all your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the face of the earth. But for this purpose, I've raised you up. For this purpose, I've set up this confrontation. What's the purpose, God? To show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That my name might be known and understood and worshipped and praised throughout the entire earth. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that uh, part of the mission of the Jewish people was to sort of brag on God or glorify God in a number of different ways so that the other nations could come to understand who God really is and what he's really all about. Um, I think in the book of Exodus and in the first five books of the Bible, we have uh, more revelation from God about his character and his personality and his name and his intent and his purpose uh, than we find in probably any place else in the scriptures. Uh, We learn an awful lot about what God is like and what God is all about in the early chapters. Uh, This is the same God that we've come to worship today. But with this uh, confrontation that God sets up between Moses and Pharaoh, Um, Even when Moses does everything exactly that God told him to do, things go wrong, okay? And you can relate to this. We talked about it a little bit last week. Uh, First of all, Pharaoh's not going to listen to God. That was expected. God already told Moses, you know, that that was going to happen. But then the Israelites turn on Moses and Aaron. That wasn't expected. 
Uh, you remember when Moses and Aaron first went down there into Egypt, they got all the leaders of the Israelites together. They told them what God was about to do. And the Israelites were like, oh, this is great. This is great. You know, and they're all excited. And it's like about time. We've been down here, you know, for hundreds of years. And finally, God is going to move on our behalf. They're all excited about it. But uh, when Pharaoh doesn't listen, he begins to think that Moses is saying, hey, these people have too much time on their hands. They want to go out in the desert and worship God. They want to go three days out into the desert, worship, and come three days back. They've got too much time in their hand. I'm going to increase their workload. So uh, Pharaoh increases the workload, and the Israelites are really now ticked off. And so the leaders of the Israelites go to Pharaoh, and uh, they have a meeting with him. And um, they, they come out of that meeting, and Moses and Aaron are waiting there to meet them. You remember this? They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them. I'm in chapter 5 and verse uh, 20. Uh, the, Moses and Aaron, they met them because they were waiting for them, and they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, uh, the Lord look upon you, Moses and Aaron, and judge you because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Like now, all of a sudden, the Israelites are turning against Moses and Aaron, okay, because their workload has doubled and so forth. You're not going to get straw. You're going to have to go get it yourself, and you know the story, okay? So Moses, he's like, you know what? I'm doing everything you told me, God, and, you know, things are going wrong here. Now, these people who I'm, in, I'm here for them, you know, and they're turning against me. So Moses turns to God. In verse 22, Moses turned to the Lord. And he said, oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? And you know what? Why did you ever send me here? Why am I in the middle of this mess? Now, can you relate to this, right? You do everything that God's asking you to do, and things kind of go south, and it doesn't feel right, and, and it's not happening, and your timing, you know, the way you want it to, and the way you imagined it would, and so forth. Why did you ever send me here, he says to God. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you haven't delivered your people at all. This isn't the way I thought it was going to go. Right? That's what uh, Moses is complaining to God. So God basically comes back and says, chill out, Moses. Just relax. Get some patience. And then uh, he, God tells Moses, I want you to go back to the people, and here's what you're going to say to them. Yeah, I'm, I'm in chapter 6 now. And uh, verse 4, uh, no, verse 6. Uh, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Listen to who it is who's speaking to you. This isn't just another human being. I am the Lord. And he ends this with I am the Lord. I am, remember? That's his name. I am the Lord, Yahweh. And uh, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from the slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I'm going to give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. What I say, I do. What promises I make, I keep. What covenants I draft, I honor. You know? So Moses spoke thus to the people, but they did not listen to Moses. 
because their broken spirit and harsh slavery. They wouldn't listen. Now, this is God speaking through Moses, his spokesperson, but they wouldn't listen. But did you notice three things uh, that God said to these people? He said, number one, I'm going to deliver you from slavery. I'm going to deliver you from out from under the Egyptian people. I'm going to free you from slavery. Uh, Number two, uh, I'm going to adopt you as my people. And number three, I'm going to give you a place, a land uh, that, that I promised to your forefathers and so forth. Now, these people were slaves, right? Which meant that they had no possessions. They had no land to pass down, no inheritance, which meant that they had no future. But God made some promises to their forefathers to give them land, Genesis 15. Uh, If you want to make a note of that, you can read it there. But still today, right, there are people who do not recognize the God of the Bible and are trying to take the land away from the Israelites still today. And that's the most controversial, you know, piece of real estate on the planet, right? And uh, we noticed, you know, that it's God who actually provokes Pharaoh into this confrontation. Ten times in the Bible, we read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Ten other times, we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Remember, we said there's this tension between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man where we all live. And that somehow, that all makes sense You know, to God, but in our minds, uh, which are limited, uh, we are not God, you know. One of the first lessons we learn when we're Christians is, I am not God. I am not the judge. I am not worthy of praise, right? I am not the creator. Uh, God is God. And uh, because of that, he has certain rights and privileges that belong to him. And so uh, God, um, you know, could... The Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that God could multiply his signs and show off his power. It's kind of cool. God wants the whole world to know. And I could show you verses here uh, where God says, you know, I want the Israelites to know who I am. I want the Egyptians to know who I am. And I want all the nations in the world to know who I am, to understand who I uh, really am. And so God starts with these nine miraculous signs Uh, which demonstrate God's superiority over Egypt's gods. In um, chapter 12, in verse 12, uh, in the book of Exodus, um, we read these words, On all the small g gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I am the only God that exists. And so it's kind of interesting to kind of, we won't do an in-depth study, but um, Egypt's many gods were focused on giving them what we would call in America the good life, right? Or the American dream. Uh, They worshipped the Nile River. They worshipped the river. Because the Nile, back in those days, would actually rise 30 feet, right? And it would overspill its banks, and it would bring all this rich topsoil to all these fields along the Nile, up to a mile away, right? And it would grow the crops. And so they worshiped the Nile. They saw the Nile as their God who gave them their food. Uh, Not only that, but they worshiped the sun, the sun god Ray, R-A. And um, why? Because the crops were abundant and the crops needed the sun and so forth. 
And uh, as a result of all this blessing that they received, uh, they had a great military army. They built great projects, think pyramids. You know, life was good. And they had lots of slaves to do everything they didn't want to do themselves, all the Israelites. And so the Egyptians credited their small g gods. Now, you remember Paul says, here's a big problem with the world, right? Well, the world's people is they worship the creation and not the creator. And God is saying, I want to be known. I want you to understand I am God. The river's not God. The sun's not God. I made those things. And uh, stop worshiping the creation and worship the creator. But these people, these uh, Israelites and Egyptians, the Egyptians were about to meet the Israelites' God, and they were about to find out that their gods, their small g gods, were frauds and deceivers. And so you're probably familiar with the story here, but first God turns the Nile River into blood, right? All the fish die. The whole place stinks, right? Just think of all these dead fish. And uh, all the rivers, all the pools, the ponds, everything turns to blood, okay? And everything smells, and there's no, no water to drink. And uh, the uh, uh, Egyptians are digging alongside the river trying to find fresh water. That goes on for like a week. But, of course, Pharaoh doesn't budge, and so next God sends frogs. And uh, I, I, this is just kind of a aside, but in chapter 8, um, uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, the Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. I mean, just frogs everywhere. Can you just imagine this? I mean, frogs, they're kind of slimy, you know, and, you know, just everywhere. They're just jumping on you and... And whatnot. And so Pharaoh has enough of this, right? And um, in chapter 8 and uh, verse 8, uh, the Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron and he says, Hey, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs, right? And uh, I'll let your people go. And Moses uh, says to Pharaoh, Well, you be pleased to tell me when. When am I supposed to ask the Lord to stop the frogs, right? And Pharaoh says, I mean, This is pretty funny, right? Tomorrow. Tomorrow, somebody wrote a book called One More Night with the Frogs, you know, kind of thing. It's like, why not just say today, you know, like now, right now, get these things out of my bed and off my face. And, you know, I mean, it's just kind of funny. And uh, so Moses, you know, does what Pharaoh asks and the frogs go away. But Pharaoh, of course, uh, refuses to, um, you know, uh, let the people go, and so then it's gnats, and then it's flies, and the flies are on the Egyptians, but not on the Israelites. And it's kind of interesting. God easily makes a distinction between his people and who are not his people. And uh, then all the livestock dies, and again, the smell, imagine boils come on people, hail comes and pounds all the buildings and so forth. And then there's finally locusts, and uh, in chapter 10, and verse 15 and 16, uh, we read this. It says, uh, the locusts covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left behind. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh called Moses and said, hey, you know, let's make a deal. And so 
just think, uh, imagine how devastated. Imagine Egypt, you know, uh, one day, one week, uh, just lush, green, cattle everywhere, food to eat, everything. A couple weeks later, just absolutely devastated. Not a green thing left on the ground. All the cattle's dead. There's no water to drink. And imagine, you know, the the hardship uh, that comes upon these people. In um, uh, chapter 10 and verse 7, uh, we read these words. Pharaoh's servants said, Hey, Pharaoh, how long are you going to let this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? Egypt is ruined. So Pharaoh's advisors are coming to him and saying, hey, stop being so stubborn. You know? And uh, so, you know, just imagine all of this stuff happens. Uh, But, of course, in 1027, at the end of the chapter, uh, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And so there's one more kind of miraculous sign. And this time, it's life and death. This time, it's not just misery and suffering. It's life and death. And uh, you remember that uh, Moses now is a prototype or a type of Jesus. He's a type of Savior, okay? Uh, Moses is a prototype for Jesus, uh, sent to rescue God's people from the slavery that they found themselves in. And the whole Exodus story, I would suggest to you, is a prototype of our salvation. It's the way God rescues us from our slavery to sin, okay? and uh, to uh, eternal death, our slavery to sin and eternal death. And uh, it's uh, foreshadowing, if you will, uh, leading up to the gospel, the good news, uh, that God will rescue us, adopt us, and bring us to a land of eternal life. It's the same three promises that God made to Israel in their physical lives God is making to us in our spiritual lives. Uh, The exodus from Egypt, uh, to use RBC's words, changed everything for these Israelites. The good news of God sending Moses to rescue them changed everything in their lives. And uh, as a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says this in verse 11. These things happened to them back there in Moses' day and the whole Old Testament These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Everything that happened back then happened, you know, in real life back then, but it happened on our behalf. And God saw to it that it was written down so that we would be able to learn and to grow and to be encouraged and inspired by those things that happened way back then. So before this final miraculous sign from God... Uh, comes about, God um, initiates two feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover, two celebrations, uh, because he wanted people to never forget, you know, what was going on and what God was about to do and how powerful God really is. So in Exodus 12 and uh, verse 14, um, this day shall be for you a memorial day, Passover. This will be a day you will never forget. This will be a memorial. 
the idea of a memorial is a remembrance or a reminder. In Hebrew, it's a zikaron, right? That's the Hebrew word, zikaron. I'm just telling you that to sound impressive. You know, I don't <clears throat> but it's like a birthday or like an anniversary, right? You have a birthday, you remember. Wow, God brought me into the world and I've got all these memories of God's blessing. Or an anniversary, God brought you into my life. And I, 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 it's a remembrance, it's an occasion to stop and to think. And, and God said the Passover is going to be an occasion like that where you stop. It's almost like a door that you walk through to re-experience what God did back then but has a profound effect on me now. Uh, because he did that for our benefit as well as he did it for the generation of the Jewish people that were literally slaves. And, um, you know, what we're talking about here, Moses and, and delivering the Israelites out of Egypt, probably about 1450 B.C., 1450 years before Jesus came. Now, we're 2,000 years past that, right, or thereabouts, that's like 3,500 years people have been celebrating the Passover and uh, what God had done for these people. And uh, it's through the Passover feast that every single Jew, down through the history of our uh, society and of our, our mankind, is invited to realize and to respond to the fact that God really loves you. God has chosen you, and he loves you. And he's done these marvelous things on your behalf. And so um, the Passover can never be forgotten. It's the culmination of seven days of preparation that leads up to it. You know, with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a lamb was to be purchased and slain on the day of Passover, and the lamb's blood was to be put on the door frames of the house, and the family was to stay inside until morning. Uh, God was about to bring death to all the firstborn Egyptians. Every family in Egypt was touched, the death of the firstborn uh, in each family. And um, we know, right, that death is the penalty for sin. If you're going to go against God, you're going to end up dead. Death is the penalty uh, for going against Yahweh. Uh, God told Adam in the garden, look, in the day that you eat of the forbidden fruit, you know, in the day that you take of that fruit, you'll surely die. And Adam and Eve uh, spiritually died, okay, uh, on that day. And um, so the New Testament, you know, says the exact same thing. The wages of sin is death. And uh, we experience, you know, physical death, but we're talking about eternal death here. Death is just separation from God, just like Get away from me. I can't deal with sin. God hates sin. You know why he hates sin? Because he knows, he made us, he knows that sin will destroy us and he loves us. And that's why he hates it. He hates sin because he knows sin will destroy us. And so furthermore, uh, we learn in the scriptures that uh, the penalty for death is sin. I mean, the penalty for sin is death, right? And listen, Life is in the blood. Remember this in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in the hospital, but every 10 minutes they're taking more blood out of you to figure out what's wrong with you or what's right with you or whether you're going to live or die. I mean, I, I, you know, phlebotomists, they're actually professional blood takers. 
For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. That makes atonement by the life. It's the blood that's shed that makes atonement. Atonement is the idea of just, you know, at one minute. Like atonement is just being reconciled. It's being right with somebody, atonement. And uh, God says way back here in Leviticus, the same God uh, who sent Jesus to the cross, you know, uh, is the God who's telling us the way of atonement, the way of being reconciled, being right with God uh, is through the sacrifice of blood. Uh, there is, uh, Hebrews chapter 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. There's no remission of sin. Without the shedding of blood, without the giving up of life, because uh, death is the penalty for going against God. So what God is doing back here in Egypt is allowing a lamb to take the place of a Hebrew family. God said, you go out, get a lamb, kill the lamb, take the blood, put it on the doorposts, and when God comes to deliver death, the penalty for sin, um, he'll pass over your house. The death of the lamb saves the firstborn from God's judgment. And people prove, right, that they are taking God at his word by doing what he asks, take the blood and put it on the doorpost. Now, it's not that God couldn't tell who lives here and who lives there, that's an Egyptian, that's an Israelite. It's that people had an opportunity to demonstrate that they really believed God, that God was going to pass over them if they would just do what he asked, you know. And uh, I, I think that's a lesson for a lot of things that God uh, talks to us about. But God is providing a means of being right with himself without dying, without having to have eternal death. Uh, there's a way of making amends with God. God will accept the substitute in our place. And this is great news. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. God will allow a lamb to take the place of people so that they wouldn't have to suffer death. And you can easily see, right, how this Passover is a prototype of the Lamb of God, Jesus, who took away the sins of the world on the cross, sheds his blood in our place. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. God made Jesus to become sin. When you read those seven last words, you know, and especially I think the most wrenching is when Jesus is on the cross and he's like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, he knew why, because God made Jesus your and my sin. And God hates sin, and death is the penalty for sin. And he allowed Jesus to die in our place. And it started way back with Moses with the Passover, allowing a lamb. God didn't want anybody to miss this message. It's so sad to me that the Jewish people, when Jesus came, couldn't understand the scriptures enough to embrace Jesus as their Messiah. They're still celebrating the Passover because they're still waiting for their Messiah to show up. And they don't understand that when Jesus came, he ultimately you know, was the ultimate lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And so it says here, you know, that for our sake, 
God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Imagine you and I, the righteousness of God. God demonstrating how righteous he is and uh, how he's the, you know, how just he is. He's the He's just and the justifier at the same time. And so, uh, let me just uh, try to run through this kind of quick because Romans chapter 3 addresses this so well. Uh, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. And uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of what God made us to be. Right? That's the opening line here is that you could never be right with God by your own efforts. It's very sad, but whenever you uh, talk to people about the Lord or you're just meeting somebody or something and you get around to talking about spiritual things, if you ask people, do you think when you die you're going to heaven? Most people say yes. And if you say, well, why do you think that? Because they say, I'm a good person. And then they compare themselves to like Charles Manson or something and they come off feeling pretty good about themselves. But here, right in the Bible, God says, listen, nobody can make amends. Nobody can be at one with God by their own efforts. Everybody falls short, right? That's just the way it is. And so Paul just comes right out and he says that. But look what he says after that. Uh, We are instead, or and, or but, we are justified by his grace as a gift. How do we get justified? Justified is a legal term. Justified is a declaration of innocence, right? Justified is a judgment uh, of innocence. It's a judgment, it's a legal term. We're declared righteous. We're declared uh, or judged righteous. Uh, And it involves a couple of things. It means we're free from guilt. It means we're forgiven. It's great news. It means we're freed from the penalty of death. And it means that we are being credited with Christ's righteousness. God takes the leisure and takes Christ's righteousness and puts it on us. I mean, it's a, it's a gift. And it's by grace. And grace is what? Undeserved favor. That's what grace is. You don't deserve this. We don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. This is by grace. It's an undeserved favor from God because why? He loves you. All right? Um, And look what it says. It's a gift, right? Through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Redemption is like buying back a slave, right? You pay a price to free somebody. That's what redemption is. You pay a price, set that thing free. You go to the store, you redeem with the coupon, the money, and you get to set the can of beans free and take it home. Free from stop and shop, right? Okay, you redeem it, right, by paying for it. And so the redemption that's in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation. There's a theological word. You have to go to seminary to figure that out. It just means being appeased. Jesus appeased the wrath of God for our sin. God hates our sin. Jesus, on the cross, appeased God's anger against sin. That's what it means. By his blood, by dying. Uh, that's the good news. It's the gospel, right? It's the gospel in the Old Testament. It's the gospel in the New Testament. And look at this. Um, how do we get this into our life? How do we take advantage of this? And Paul says, you know, uh, Jesus was a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
How do you take advantage on a personal level of what God has done for us? By faith. The same way those people back there took the blood and applied it to the doorposts of their house, we take the blood of Jesus and apply it to our lives on a personal level, simply by faith. We just do. We believe God. He's making a promise here. And that's how we apply it to ourselves. And then look, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. I think it goes all the way back to the Passover here. He had passed over former sins, goes all the way through the uh, Old Testament. Um, And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's just, he's true to his word. He hates sin, death is a penalty for sin. He's gonna make sure that uh, it's, his holiness is satisfied, but he's also gonna justify us. He's gonna declare us innocent and he does it through the cross. One last passage of scripture, I promise to quit. All right, in um, Hebrews chapter 10. So let me read a few verses here. I didn't put this up on the screen, but listen. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. You hear what he's saying? Okay. Otherwise, the people, would they not have ceased to be offered these sacrifices since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. If you go all the way back to the Old Testament, all these animals that were sacrificed and so forth, every year they were reminded on the Day of Atonement, oh, what a terrible sinner you are. Christ comes, takes all that away from us. You're declared righteous. The righteousness of Christ credited to your account, right? Um, but in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said the above, uh, you have neither um, desired nor taken pleasure in the sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Uh, Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. He abolishes the first, all of those sacrificial systems to establish the sacrifice of his son once and for all. It is finished. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful. You know, you had this planned out thousands of years, right? Jesus, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. And we're reading here from thousands of years ago how you prepared this and so that your people would understand when Jesus came. And Father, you, uh, you know, blew the doors off of uh, the Israelites to extend your grace to the whole world. And we're here to worship you because we're partakers in that grace and that gift in that wonderful offering of your son on our behalf. 
Help us to understand who we are because of who you are. Father, Jesus paid a debt that he didn't owe because we owed a debt that we couldn't pay. And we're so thankful to you for the wonderful gift of life that you've given us in Jesus' name. Amen.